believe it or not. When I came to seminary, it was not the first time that I went to St. Louis or journeyed there or whatever. In fact, I moved here in 2013 when I was shipped off to college by my parents from my hometown in Darien, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, uh, and I attended St. Louis University. So pretty much I've spent most of my adult life here in St. Louis. Now, college came with many new freedoms, and if you've been to college, if one of your kids or grandkids are in college, they can tell you all about it. No longer are, is your teacher, now your professor, going to call you and make sure that you show up to class because you were sleeping in. And also, your mom and dad, at least, you know, my mom and dad weren't there to wake me up to go to church on Sunday morning, or to find you one in your new place, or to give you a ride. It's all up to you. But also, I was uh, freed from fights over pizza. And yes, I am not lying when I say pizza. Because you see, pizza is a big deal where I grew up near Chicago. In Chicago, each family at church, school, your friends, they all have their favorite place where they say, these people make the best pizza. And all these places, all of them, are probably started, you know, in the early 20th century by Italian immigrants. So, you know, you can taste that. And so decades of baking pizzas in these same ovens over and over again has led to what I call a fine patina of pizza that has led to a secret but tasty solution or conclusion that all Chicago pizza is fantastic and none is the best. However, no one could or would admit this because their pizza has to be the best. Each pizza place has its own rules that they play by that makes it the best. We only do deep dish, only thin crust. Uh, we use these special tomatoes and olive oil in the finishing process to give you the best product. But hey, if any of these rules were broken, it would mean big trouble. For example, my grandma, if she got her Salerno's Grande pizza and she opened it up and there wasn't a puddle of grease, she would be upset. My uncle, who was a plumber in Chicago, would say, if his pizza looked wrong, why is the sausage on top? It's supposed to be on the bottom. <laughs> but let me tell you, when I moved to St. Louis, I was freed from this nightmare. It turns out in St. Louis, people only ironically go to and buy Emo's pizza. It turns out that Cecil Whitaker's is only used for the show Fear Factor. <laughs> Pizza choice is now fair game. No longer can I bring shame to my family if the paparazzi find me walking out of a Papa John's. <laughs> but I'll never forget the first time I saw a commercial for the place Little Caesars, which I know is not St. Louis, it's Detroit, but I had never seen a commercial for it in the Chicagoland area. In the commercial, something, a narrative was spun that touched my heart. A man walks into the Little Caesars pizza place and he says, I'd like a pizza. And the lady just gives him one. And he goes, wait, I didn't have to call. I didn't have to uh, wait. I didn't have to decide what to put on it. And then he rips off his shirt and he says, there's no rules. <laughs> and I really identify that because, identify with that because I, you know, just had this chaos 
of being free from the realization of me living under this system of rules growing up of this is what pizza had to be like, I was so confused. Well, there's someone like that in our gospel lesson today. In today's text, we encounter people just like you or I. Uh, You see, back in Jesus' day, people had theological questions that they were interested in being answered, just like you or I. People do it each week for me at quarter life or after service. And, uh, you know, sometimes I have to admit, I don't know myself. I'll look it up and get back to you next week. But we all have these questions, right? Well, this guy, he has the chutzpah to say, Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? You see, we don't know his motivations, but he is asking a question about the salvation of others. But it doesn't seem like maybe for the good reason, like Pastor Golden talks to us about, because we're concerned about, you know, the salvation of our neighbor, and out of love we want to share the good news with them. No, instead, you see, Ezra prophesied by the Holy Spirit way back in the day that Yahweh made this age for many, but the one to come for few. And that is terrifying. So... What did they do? Well, the high priests, the Pharisees, the, what becomes the Sanhedrin that we hear about as they're the ones that tried Jesus. They got together, and we in fact still have this document. It's been passed down in the Jewish community. They came to the conclusion that all Israelites have a share in the world to come. Putting to rest that man's answer, putting to rest everyone's answer, uh, if I... If my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is Abraham, then I will go to heaven. And of course, this is what they decided and not God. Therefore, according to Sanhedrin, if you were related to Abraham, then everything was going to be okay. You're literally grandfathered into the coming kingdom of God. Even though this went directly against Ezra's prophecy. So, the guy who is asked this question, will those who are saved be few? He's probably thinking at this point when Jesus, um, uh, well, when he's thinking of the Sanhedrin decision that all Israelites will be saved, he's probably thinking, okay, well, uh, what they've decided, the Sanhedrin, this is good news. However, it's only good news for me um, and the Israelites. And uh, I also have this question brewing in my head, and I'm going to ask Jesus about this. Uh, I think this ruins our whole complex system of laws that we have set in place. Do I have to keep following those? I like those that give order to the chaos of my life. And a Lutheran today might say in a similar way, you know, I've been baptized and uh, I'm saved by good works, so I think that means I don't have to be nice to anyone anymore. There's no more rules. But Jesus' answer, let me tell you, it blew me away when I had to prepare for the sermon. And I'm sure it blows you away. His answer, he says, all right, buddy, let's not talk about them, their salvation. How about you? What have you done and what are you doing to make sure that you will get through the narrow door? At first, our guttural Lutheran response 
is, Jesus, what do you mean? I mean, I thought I was saved by good works, Jesus. What's going on? This is exactly the way our old selves might read the text. Our old Adam, our old Eve, we even cringe at Jesus' gospel message in this reading. He says, people from all over the world, not just Jews anymore, Greeks, Germans, the Chinese, Africans, they're all going to be able to get into the narrow door now, right? We just sang a, a, a hymn about it, and it's also the Old Testament reading today, the prophecy. And uh, they're going to be at this victory feast with the master. And by the way, most of you, the people probably listening to me right now that are following, the Jews, Israelites, grandsons, Abraham himself, you probably won't be at the party Um, In fact, the last are going to be first, and the first are going to be last. And these phrases are supposed to bring great joy to the hearer, right? That the low are going to be made high. The kingdom is now for everybody. But for some reason, they don't like it. Luther actually says that these verses are uh, ones that shock even the holiest of saints. In fact, Jesus will actually catch word right after this story that Herod wants to kill him, and pretty much by the end of the New Testament, most people want to kill Jesus. So what does it say about the people hearing it that these words that should bring joy and comfort are angry when they hear these words? What does it say about, I don't know, ourselves? Well, Jesus, uh, he wants us to know, and he knows that we are all living in little microcosms Amongst ourselves, we're basically enslaving ourselves under the law. And so you might ask, Vicar Dan, what does that look like? Well, I'm here to say that it looks like this. If I get good boy points at home, then maybe my wife will make me my favorite food. If I do well on my project at work or school, then that cute girl maybe will pay attention to me. If no one finds out about what I did, then everything's going to be okay because I didn't get caught. You see, it's these little sports and games that we're constantly practicing for the next one in our heads, and Jesus knows this. In fact, the word that Jesus uses in verse 24 when he tells us to strive to enter the kingdom, which is also used in the epistle today, is agonitsesthe, which can be read or interpreted in three different ways in the Bible. Besides strive, what we heard today, it's also used by Luke's mentor, the Apostle Paul, when he, um, well, he uses it like a verbal form of the word athlete. So it looked like this. Athlete your way into the door. Try again and again barreling into the door to try and get through, for all I care. And similarly, you might say struggle. Paul also uses this he, um, when he's talking about the sanctified life, which is kind of why the epistle today sounded like an angry phone call from Dad. But sanctification can be a scary thing for Lutherans, right? Because when we hear sanctification, we think that maybe this means that we have to do something or contribute to us being saved. But I'm here to tell you and assure you that This is not about using your good works to get into heaven, this verse today. I'm here to tell you about how it is about repentance. 
And the reason I know this is because Jesus continues to talk about what the master does when he's in the house. We don't know yet if the master is, in fact, God the Father or Jesus or who, uh, while we're reading it. Because right now he's just acting as a gatekeeper for people coming and going out of the door and eat at the victory feast. The key that Jesus uses here is when he says that most people will only begin to think about getting into the kingdom and wondering about their salvation when it isn't even the last minute. He's saying people are going to begin to realize that they want to go to heaven and be with the master when the door is already closed. It's too late when that happens, as Jesus says. You see, the people's idea of salvation at this time had to do with the troubles that are present, that are right here and here and now, not far away dangers. If you can remember what people end up saying about Jesus when he's there on the cross, they say, huh, he could save others, but he couldn't save himself. But who's to blame them? We actually do this ourselves in our week to week. We want to make sure uh, dinner's ready on time. We want to make sure Bobby got a soccer waiver signed so that the teacher doesn't call and yell at me. You know, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' message is one that's urgent, yet eternal in consequence. It requires you to take action. Plain and simple. This is how you're to strive to enter the kingdom through the master's narrow door. As Jesus continues in verse 26, revealing that he is, in fact, the master of the story, it's not simply enough to listen to preaching in the streets or here in church or, you know, me giving my sermon or Pastor Golden. No, you need to be able to repent, change your way, your behavior, and live different. In fact, I made sure I looked in the confessions and Philip Melanchthon writes that in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, good works follow faith so that faith is exercised in them. And let me tell you about shot through the roof when I saw exercise, because when I read when Melanchthon says that we ought to exercise our faith through good works, I said, hmm, that kind of sounds like when Jesus tells us to strive to enter the narrow door. So what does a sanctified life of repentance look like? Well, I'm here to tell you that it actually looks like you. As Lutherans, we believe that our justification is our sanctification. And justification, of course, looks like this. When you were baptized, your old self, your old Adam and Eve, who was enslaved under the old rule of the law, the old system, was put to death with Christ and then brought back out of that death into new life, the resurrected life of Christ. You are now declared righteous by God for the sake of Jesus Christ, right? In this new life, Christ doesn't simply leave you there. He rips open the door to the kingdom, pulls that chair out, sits you down at the feast, and you all celebrate, right? And we're living in that kingdom right now, and we're receiving a foretaste of the final banquet that we read about in today's story each time we do the supper. And um, each morning, grace is made new, and we rejoice in that. And this is all wonderful, good, exciting, 
beautiful, but how come, even if all of that is true, what I just told you, if all of that's true, then how come we all still exclaim swear words when we stub our toes? How come, if that's all true, we still divide ourselves into little tribes and we fight one another over what are actually molehills, but we make to be mountains? It turns out that, oh no, Pastor Golden was right in confirmation class. Not only am I a saint, now that I'm a Christian, I'm also a sinner. But that doesn't make sense. I want my if-then logical statement. I'm supposed to be punished when I do things bad and be praised when I do things right. It seems like there's no rules. Well, all these questions and protestations, they're coming from our old, dying Adam and Eve that are clenching their spindly little fingers around the coattails of our new selves that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and have begun their new lives in Christ's life. And that's where Melanchthon continues. After he says, exercise your faith through your good works, not only for yourself, he says, let it grow and be shown to others so that they might be invited to godliness through your confession. So let me tell you a story about when I worked at Papa John's in college. When I worked there, one of my finest achievements that I still put on all my resumes is that I was certified by the American Pizza Association. And that gave me the authority to judge the appearance of a pizza. Therefore, if one was ugly, I could tell the workers that were under me to make a new one, because we're not delivering that to the customer. Now, don't get me wrong. Pizza tastes great, whether it looks pretty or not. Uh, Greg can agree with that in the pews. And... However, if your Papa John's is constantly delivering these ugly pizzas that don't seem to care about what they look like to the customer, if you do that, then people are going to stop ordering pizza from your Papa John's because you got ugly pizzas. So in a similar way, though, all analogies break apart at some point, uh, the faith that you exercise in your good works are a way in which the Holy Spirit is acting through you and through the gospel to call others to faith and repentance in Christ. Your neighbor, not God, of course, needs your good works and your if-then statements because your neighbor is still living under the dominion of those if-then logical statements. They are still living in that world with the rules that we were enslaved with before we were baptized. So what does a sanctified, repentant life look like? It is coming to terms with your justification. Because sanctification is coming to terms with your justification. Embracing that you have become and have new life in your baptism. So, this looks like rethinking those if-then statements in your life that ran your old life, your enslaved life, and rethinking them in ways that now, in Christ, they're even though nevertheless statements. So what are some examples of these? Even though my, dog, or my neighbor's dog keeps relieving himself 
on my lawn, I nevertheless am still going to mow the little strip of grass that is alongside his driveway because that's what I do for my other neighbor. Even though my big sister punched me in the stomach really hard and I lost all my wind for like five minutes, nevertheless, I'm still going to let her use my big favorite hairbrush. Even though I am a poor, miserable sinner, nevertheless, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and then rose again. Know this new sanctified life is not an if-then statement for you. It's actually rescuing your neighbors who are still trapped in those if-then statements. The captivity of the hellish games they're playing in their head and torturing themselves with under the law. This new life that I'm describing completely obliterates that old way. It doesn't make any sense. It's Jesus' way. It's everlasting life. It's repentance and unconditional love. It's the gospel. It's Jesus' life and ministry. And guess what? Because of that, it's your life and ministry. Because in your baptism, Jesus' life is now your life, and you can't help it. So leave all of your old sin, your old self, Adam and Eve, leave them at the pain before your baptism. Leave them before the narrow door, because they won't fit. Very, very soon, we're all going to be sitting at the great banquet table together in the master's house where Jesus has made you a seat. But please first, invite your neighbor. Amen.